be back with you. Uh, thank you for having us. Um, I'd like to turn with you, if I could, to the book of Genesis, uh, to chapter 37. And uh, originally I'd said to John that we would think about glory, uh, suffering, well, really suffering, and then followed by glory from the book of First Peter. Uh, but, you know, those... Uh, those themes are throughout the Word of God, right? It's not just First Peter, right? Suffering is, um, well, Paul said it's for all who live godly in Christ Jesus, right? Everybody who lives godly in Christ Jesus will suffer, uh, will suffer persecution. And so this concept, we could go back to the book of Genesis and we could see it in that beginning. We could see it uh, lived out in the life of Joseph. And so that's what we'd like to consider for the a few sessions were together, is uh, the life of Joseph. Now, um, uh, we've been reminded tonight of the value of seeing uh, Christ in the Scriptures. You know, this is our heart's desire to uh, see the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, I'm not sure if there's a better place, certainly in the Old Testament, uh, to see the life of the Lord Jesus uh, as it's typified in the life of Joseph. Now, you may say that uh, Joseph is never referred to as a type of Christ, and we say, well, yes, we agree that's true, um, but certainly we see lots of Christ in Joseph's life, right? If you ever have the opportunity to uh, read through uh, Ada Habershon's book on the study of the types, she has more than a 100 references Right? Are anybody familiar with Ada Habershon's book on the types? Uh, well, she has more than a hundred references, cross-references from the life of Joseph to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, William MacDonald, his book, although he understands that some people struggle with this concept that Joseph isn't referred to as a type of Jesus in the New Testament, uh, his book on the life of Joseph, do you remember it? Have you ever seen it? It's entitled, Joseph Makes Me Think of Jesus. Right? And so... Uh, we'll work through if we can. We won't obviously do all the chapters because um, I think it's accurate to say Joseph's the main character of the book of Genesis. Is that true, you think? Well, uh, I, I don't know how we determine these things. Uh, I guess we would have to maybe numerically, uh, is Joseph the main character numerically? Uh, you know, sometimes people think of Abraham as being the main character of the book of Genesis or maybe the, the main character of the Old Testament. Now we know how important he is. He's the father of the faithful, all who have faith. Abraham's the prototype. But if there's uh, 50 chapters in the book of Genesis, and there is, uh, how many of those chapters are reserved for the life of Joseph? Well, 12. Uh, we start at 37. We would suggest that 38 isn't. It's about uh, the life of Judah. Right, uh, And so it, it comes after uh, Joseph is rejected by his brethren and then the life of Judah comes out and it's this basic disaster. Uh, and we would suggest that um, that has dispensational, what some call dispensational teaching, this idea of whatever you know happened to Israel after they rejected the Prince of Peace. Well, we know disaster came, right? We know that uh, in 70 AD, the... Uh, city of Jerusalem was leveled, it was ransacked, and, and, and after that the Jews for most of 2,000 uh, years have been dispersed. Now we know they've been called back to the land, but 
disaster followed. So we say that dispensationally is presented for us in chapter 38. So Joseph doesn't come into 38, and uh, maybe he doesn't come in in 49, but from here till the end of the book, it's about Joseph. So numerically, the book of Genesis is keyed around this important uh, character. And so we want to read uh, beginning in uh, chapter 37, verse 1. It says this, Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheep arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheep stood all around and bowed down to my sheep. And his brother said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him. But his father kept the matter in mind. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, Here I am. Then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him, and there he was wandering in the field. The man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, Some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands. And he said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, 
shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness. Do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked. And there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Joseph said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit. And indeed, Joseph was not in the pit and he tore his clothes And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted, for he said, I shall, For now I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. Let's again ask the Lord for his help. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're uh, thankful tonight for your Holy Spirit who uh, moved Moses to pen these words that, uh, Father, they're given for our uh, edification, for our building up, for our instruction. And so, Father, we just ask for that. We ask that we would... Uh, be built up tonight in our our holy faith, that the Holy Spirit again would be our teacher, that we would be helped, that we would be equipped. We cast ourselves upon you for your blessing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, um, first of all, it's his age that's mentioned. Joseph was 17 years of age. He was a young man. Um. What do you think about youth? How involved can young people be? Uh, Well, I mean, he's 17. He's uh, shepherding. He's uh, involved in uh, his father's business. You know, uh, I guess one of the challenges, one of the challenges in the New Testament church, certainly in the day in which uh, we live, is uh, seeing young people seeing young people given real responsibility. 
um, you know, out on the West Coast, uh, it's the same challenge. Uh, leadership, eldership, what's perceived as real uh, spiritual responsibility is often reserved for those who are quite a bit more mature. You know, that hasn't always been the case. Um, we would be associated, whether you know this or not, historically the assembly here would be associated with a movement that started in the previous or two centuries ago, you know, around the 1850s, right? And um, I'm not forcing these ideas on you. If you were to go into an assembly library like your assembly, there would be books by um, men like John Nelson Darby or... C.H. Uh, Macintosh or uh, others, J.G. Bellet. You know, these were all men that the Lord used in the middle 1800s to see what we're part of started, established. These were it was a work of the Spirit of God. We don't deny that. Uh, these went, men were used mightily. They were um, well educated in the Scriptures. But how old do you think they were? Does anybody know? How old was John Nelson Darby when he left the Anglican Church and saw the beginning of the assembly movement? How old was John Gifford Bellet? Any ideas? John Clifford. You must know how old John Bellet was. He was in his 20s, yeah. They were all in their 20s. Um. How old do you think the Apostle John was when he forsook the family business and started to follow the Lord Jesus? I mean, it would be just speculation, but how old do you think he was? 20, that's a good guess. I would think he's probably a little younger than that. Some have said, and and, um, this would be uh, sort of, the scholars or those who sort of figured this out, and they sort of worked backwards from his age when he wrote the last two letters or the last two uh, books of the Bible, when he wrote the Revelation and, and his epistles and the Gospel of John, they sort of worked backwards, and they, they, they suspect he was probably in his late teens. Uh, how old do you think Mary was when she bore the Lord Jesus? In her teens? Well, that's what they tell us. I mean, nobody knows these things for sure. But um, in a past generation, young people were given real responsibility. And and so here, uh, Joseph is given real responsibility. At 17 years of age, he's already involved in shepherding, uh, involved in the family business. It's interesting to me that um, he's a shepherd. How many shepherds were there in the Old Testament? How many of the greats were? Name some of them. Moses took the took the easy one right off the. Okay, that's good. And what did somebody else say? David was a shepherd. Was David a shepherd? Yeah, David was a shepherd. Who else? Well, Jesus, of course, he's the good shepherd. Any of the others? Any others? Famous people in the Old Testament. Hey, all of Jacob's family, 
right? We're going to read further on. Remember when they all, 72 of them, however many there were, came down to Egypt and they stood before Pharaoh. What did you remember what Joseph said to, to say to Pharaoh? What was their job? We are a family of shepherds. Any other shepherds? Well, you've named all uh, men so far. Were there any women shepherds in the book of Genesis? Well, uh, I think there was, wasn't there? Chapter 29, do you know of one? Uh, Genesis 29, verse 9. Now, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Shepherding was very important in God's economy. Right? Uh, in fact, you remember uh, when uh, the Lord Jesus recommissioned Peter Right? Remember, he recommissioned Peter in his ministry. What was it to? It was a threefold ministry. What was it? What was it towards? You know that. If you were the note in the New King James or in the Old King James, it was first to what? To look after the little ones, right? And then to look after the bigger ones, and then to in the middle there feed them, right? So shepherding was very important in God's economy. Why do you think shepherding? I mean, we've heard examples of that. We've heard, um, you know, that, uh, you know, Moses spent 40 years. You hear people divide his life into three parts, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years leading the children of Israel. We've all heard that illustration uh, or that example. That's how his life divided up. And, and um, uh, you know, that middle part, you know, that, that training time before he was uh, raised up to lead out Israel, he spent 40 years on the backside of the desert shepherding sheep, right? And so, what would be the value of that? Why would that be so important? Uh, well, we know this, that sometimes when God talked about uh, the leaders in Israel in a negative sense, he talked about them as, as evil shepherds, right? Right? fleecing the flock for their own advantage. Um, why shepherds? Why shepherding? Why would the people of God be called sheep? Well, um, you know, sometimes people say, well, sheep are stupid. Um, sort of reject that idea. I mean, it's a bit offensive to be called stupid. I mean, I might say you're not that smart. I say, well, I can live with that. Not that smart, but the idea of being stupid is a bit offensive. You know, my grandfather had sheep. Uh, he spent his whole life as a shepherd. Um, he had 500 uh, sheep in uh, British Columbia, purebred sheep, and uh, he made a living. He made a good living uh, raising uh, quality sheep, and he never believed sheep were stupid. All right. He would tell a story. His favorite joke was, um, you know, little Johnny when he was in school and the teacher was trying to explain math to him, uh, said, you know, I knew that Johnny knew sheep and, and um, said, you know, Johnny, if there were 
ten sheep in the pen and, and one got out, how many would there be? And he said, zero. And she said, no, Johnny, there's ten sheep in the pen and, and uh, one sheep got out, how many would that leave? And he said, zero. She said, Johnny, ten sheep in the pen, one gets out, how many would that leave? And he says, teacher, you may know math, but I know sheep. And so uh, that's a fact, that if there was a hole in the pen, all the sheep would get out. And so uh, why shepherding? Why would that be so uh, often the illustration that the Word of God uses for our care of one another? Well, doesn't it have something more maybe to do with how dependent we are to one another? You know, this has been the problem in the church in 2018 in the United States of America or in Canada or any part of the world, the interdependence upon one another. You know, Peter was a shepherd, right? Peter understood shepherding. It was that... That illustration we already thought about that that um, the Lord used in, in Peter's life. And so, you know, it's interesting that um, when Peter thought about the saints about to go through this heavy, heavy tribulation, uh, he, he was able by the Spirit of God to predict what Nero, and uh, or to prophetically see what Nero was about to do to the church. Uh, he sought to prepare the saints for that. And you know what's interesting is he taught universal truth, right? I mean, you go through and you look when he starts at the end of chapter 1, the principles that he taught were universal truths, right, for every Christian. Like he started started at uh, being born again, right? Like uh, you believe that, right? Like if you're not born again, you're not in the New Testament church, right? Uh, but there are people who aren't in the assembly who are born again, right? You believe that? You believe people can get saved in another church? You believe they can be born again somewhere else? Yeah, we believe that too. Uh, we question it sometimes, right? But um, So that's a universal truth. And so that's where he starts, being born again. He says, not a corruptible seed but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Uh, That's a universal truth. In fact, the Lord Jesus uh, said to Nicodemus that except a man be born again, he can never see the kingdom of God. And so it's universal. It's for all Christians, all born again. And he goes on to talk um, uh, talk about the sincere milk of the word, right? That every Christian feeds upon the same food, uh, Then he goes on to talk about uh, being built into the same body, this temple, if you will, this same building that's being raised up. Right? We know this, that we're, hey, we're connected. You're connected. We're connected to every Christian in this town, in this city, right? In this state. Uh, In fact, in the world. Uh, Hey, beyond that, we're connected to the Apostle Paul. I remember a a brother out our way, he uh, had sort of what some would have thought was a, you know, a, a liberal view of things. And uh, he was a close family friend. And, and um, in the little assembly I was part of, uh, I was in, responsible for arranging the speakers. And so um, 
I phoned Brother Bob and I'm like, Bob, I got any names I can I can um, have to invite brothers to come and minister the word? And uh, he said, Well, yeah, out in Abbotsford, you got uh, Ed Tracy. He's out there. I'm like, Ed Tracy's in heaven. He's like, Oh, okay. Uh, what about this brother? I'm like, Bob, that brother's in heaven too. I'm like, have you got anybody on the list who's still here? He's like, oh, Rob, I don't recognize the difference. And I said, well, okay, theologically he's right. But, I mean, practically it has some challenges. But, um, right, we're in the same body as the Apostle Paul. And so this is what Peter acknowledged. And so this is why he could say that, and Paul could in writing to the Hebrews, that, hey, that when one member suffers, we all suffer together. And so these ideas of uh, shepherding, it's connected with the interdependence. That's what sheep are. They're connected to one another. They're a flock. They're not an animal that does well individually. In fact, you would rarely ever see them as individuals. You would always see them together. And so that's how we are. Uh, for a church to be healthy, it's that working together, right? That connection to one another. So this is, starts with uh, shepherding. This is Joseph called at 17 to, to be a shepherd. And so I think if we uh, want to be challenged uh, in our own lives that, hey, we should be involved in the care of one another, right? It shouldn't be only just, uh, you know, maybe the pastor. You know, the, uh, I mean, we like the word, you know, uh, it's a biblical word. Uh, sometimes when young people describe the, the church they're part of, somebody from the outside maybe would say, what's your church like? Uh, they would say, well, we don't have a pastor, right? Have you maybe heard that somewhere along the way, that uh, we don't have a pastor? But that's not true, right? Is it? That's not biblical. Uh, there should be a multiplicity of pastors, right? Right, that's the biblical model more. And not just, as we said, not just those that the Lord has maybe raised up in leadership, that others can be involved in this too. And that young people can be involved in the shepherding of one another. You know, I was reading um, uh, Susanna Wesley today, and you know, uh, I mean, um, that's what Greg, you were thinking about, right? Of uh, He was wondering if this was a, a Methodist church. So you were thinking of John and... Charles Wesley, were you? Were they in this area? Yeah, they were in this area a long time ago, weren't they? And, um, you know, uh, their father, now that would be Susanna's husband, he was spiritually a, uh, well, I don't know what the word would be except a flake, maybe. Is that, you know what that is? Do you know any? You do know a few? <laughs> um, uh, he was, uh, wasn't, he wasn't a spiritual leader, but but yet those boys, those boys went on to great things for the Lord. Uh, I don't know if you ever uh, read some of um, John Wesley's exploits in the gospel, uh, and not just in the gospel, but his exploits in Christian ministry. Uh, they were quite extensive. I mean, uh, in fact, uh, almost to the point of being unbelievable, right? You know, read 1,200 books, you know, studied his Bible every morning, read 1,200 books, wrote 200, uh, 
traveled around the world the equivalent of 13 times on horseback, preached 54,000 plus messages in his life. Uh, They said he had critics, people who didn't agree with his theology. They said, uh, one biographer said that although he had these critics, that John Wesley was up, had done his morning devotions, had preached three sermons before most of these people even got out of bed in the morning. And it was him who said, uh, the Lord has more to do in me than through me. Right? So he understood that, hey, not everybody agreed with him, but um, he was a great man of God. It wasn't his dad who was the influence in his life. It was his mom. She was the shepherdess in his life, Charles' life those other children's lives. And so it's all of us uh, connected together. So shepherding. Uh, I think if we look at this verse, this, uh, verse 2, and think of um, a cross-reference to the Lord Jesus, uh, the lad was with the sons of Bilhah, and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, uh, but he wasn't like them, right? He didn't live like them, okay? And so he brought an evil report. And so sometimes people uh, think of him as a, a tattletale, but I, I reject that idea. Right? He stood for righteousness' sake. Right? And so it wasn't a tattletale. Hey, what his brothers were doing was wrong and it needed to be dealt with. And so he certainly proves by his life he was interested in his brothers and their spiritual well being. And so sometimes we need to be brave with regards to righteousness. And so uh, that's a picture of the Lord Jesus. He came into this world. He lived among sinners, but he wasn't like sinners, right? No, no, he uh, became a man. Then verse 3 says, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. And so we're um, reminded of the unique relationship of love uh, between a father and a son. Now, there's a principle in Scripture. uh, Some call it the law of first mention. And so... uh, uh, you know, the idea that when a word is first used, the first time it's used, that becomes the foundation for it throughout Scripture. So we always want to go back to the first time the word is mentioned uh, to assess what it means. Uh, for instance, death. You know, sometimes people will tell us that death means cease to exist. But we know that that's not the case in Scripture because the first time the word is used is uh, back in Genesis, and God says to Adam, "In the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. But he didn't die that day, did he? Or did he? Well, he didn't cease to exist, but something happened. A spiritual separation, right? And, and so that's uh, true sometimes. People say, well, uh, they died. Well, I mean, what's happened is the body has been separated from the soul and the spirit not the idea of ceasing to exist. So we think of that principle. Now we think of the word love. When's the first time love is mentioned in the Bible? Well, Adam and Eve, maybe, do you think? No? Well, not the first brothers. That wouldn't wouldn't fit there. There's no love lost there, would it be? Genesis 22 is the first mention of the word love. Is that what you were thinking, James? Rachel. Yeah, no, it's uh, back in Genesis chapter 22. And so that's the first mention of love. 
And you know the verse. Take now your son, your only son whom you love. So the first mention of love in the Bible is in the context of a father for his only son. You think that's random? What's the first mention of love in the New Testament? Huh? Somebody, who said? John? No, now that's excellent. Now that's excellent. That's good. That's good. But now listen to this. This is helpful because... Um, the first mention of love in, in, in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 3. Right? Remember? Yeah. Yeah. Heaven opened. And what does it say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the first mention of love in the New Testament is in the context of the love of a father for his only son. Mark. Same, baptism, chapter 1. Luke, same, chapter 3, the baptism of the Lord Jesus. So three times in the Gospels, the first mention of love is in the context of heaven being opened and the Father declaring His love for His only Son. So it's consistent with the Old Testament. So now when we come to John chapter 3, first mention of love in John chapter 3 is John 3, verse 16. Now it's not heaven being opened, it's the Son who is in heaven He's speaking, and he's saying, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so uh, these things remain consistent. So that's what we have here, this unique relationship. Joseph, or sorry, Israel loved Joseph more than his others. Yeah, there's a unique love there. But we don't want to be misled and think that... um, Joseph didn't love, or sorry, that Jacob didn't love his other sons. He did. Because later in the chapter, he sent Joseph to them. Right? He knew what, what the brothers thought of Joseph. Right? And so, uh, love, the context of love. Uh, then we want to think about um, this uniqueness of the relationship. You know, evidenced by the coat. Uh, maybe we could say uh, Ada says she sees that in the New Testament. Uh, And other writers would say the same thing, you know, heaven being opened, you know, and the Father declaring His love for the Son. This is similar. There's some similarities to the code of many colors. But we do want to emphasize, as we think in our theology, the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had a unique relationship with the Father. Right? You know, uh, I don't know, in the last 30 or 40 years, men have gone to great lengths Great lengths to show how the Lord Jesus Christ is like us. You know, they, they think that um, they think that if He's like us, uh, He can be sympathetic to us in our need. You know, some would even tell us that uh, you know that Mary has the potential to be more sympathetic than even the Lord Jesus, right? And, and, and so, what these people would do is. Um, I go to great lengths to emphasize his humanity. I don't know if you've ever um, had this opportunity to read this book by David Boyd Long. And, and of course, he's refuting this idea. It's entitled, um, Could the Incarnate God Sin? And so what he shows is, is um, rather than the emphasis in the New Testament of how the Lord Jesus is like us, it's actually how the Lord Jesus is not like us. 
Right? That's the foundation of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, three times, three times uh, the Spirit of God through Matthew tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ was born virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit. Why would that be important, do you think? What would be the point of that? Well, this idea that he didn't have a sin nature. You don't think that's important? You know, there are Christians today who would um, say this, that the Lord Jesus Christ could have sinned, but he didn't. Now, of course, all Orthodox Christians believe that, that he didn't. But sadly, some believe he could have. Why would this be a problem? Well, this is what David Boyd Long goes to great lengths to refute is, um, here's a problem. Uh, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, forever. So if he could have sinned when he walked on the earth, he could still sin in heaven, right? If that verse is true. Uh, they say, well, that's okay. We know he wouldn't. So, well, here's another problem. What's the hope of the church? Uh, that when we see him, we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. So, although some would say he couldn't, he wouldn't, uh, if in eternity we could, we would. Right? People say, I wish I could have been in the garden, not Adam, me. You know how that would have ended up. Um, my friend Jabe says, um, the Lord should have said to Adam, don't eat the snake. And he said it would have probably been solved. Right? And so we know this, that that the emphasis of the New Testament is not that the Lord Jesus is like us, but rather we're going to be like him. And so David Boy Long says he wasn't born like us. He didn't live like us, right? Didn't die like us, raised again like us. The whole emphasis is the uniqueness of this relationship. And so that's what we have right at the beginning of of Joseph's life, his unique relationship with his father. You know, we could say, uh, in addition, you know, to what we thought about in John 3, verse 16, you know, that it says, for God so loved the world, you know, the so love, this word so is, uh, I mean, no, we know it's inexhaustible, the idea, but it definitely quantifies Whereas further down in the chapter, when the father speaks of the relationship of the son, what does it say? The father so loves the son? No, it says the father loves the son. It's a word without measure, right? And so uh, you have that emphasized in um, Joseph's life. Uh, Then we go on. uh, The brothers hated him for this. Uh, We're not surprised by that. We see that in the life of the Lord Jesus. Uh, they hate him for his righteousness. Uh, now uh, uh, he has these two dreams. The first, uh, the sheaves in the field bowing down. Second, uh, the stars, the 
moon, the sun, uh, all bowing down the 11 stars. And so uh, we say, where is that uh, corresponding idea in the New Testament? If you had to think of this idea of the, the, the sheaves bowing down to Joseph, and then you think of the second dream, uh, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowing down to Joseph, where would be the corresponding idea to that in the New Testament, if you had to guess? Would you guess in Ephesians chapter 1? Keep your finger here and let's see if it fits. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul describes to us God's eternal purposes. In verse 7, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Now notice this, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. And so, hey, some of ably pointed out that the two dreams, one connected with the earthly, the other part connected with the heavenly, it's what Paul's teaching in Ephesians chapter 1. This idea of God's eternal purposes in the person of his son. Well, it's pictured for us in the life of Joseph. Now, uh, his brothers hated him for it. Well, we see that in the life of the Lord Jesus, right? Right As you flip back to Genesis, stop at the end of Mark. Maybe chapter uh, 14. Mark chapter 14. Verse 62, Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? We have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And so we see that back in Genesis as well pictured. So back to chapter 37. So we have these two dreams. Uh, Joseph tells him to his brothers, to his father. We have that at the end of verse 11. And it says this in verse 12, And his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And so we can think of all the various times that um, we read in the New Testament gospel accounts of the Father sending the Son. Right? The Father sent the Son into the world. Right? And so Joseph, or Jacob sends Joseph to his brothers. Why? Because he loved them. Uh, we move past there. Uh, he sent them to Shechem. Uh, verse 15 says, A certain man found him, and there he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, 
What are you seeking? He said, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, they have departed from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. And so we think here that, um, you know, Joseph, if he was obedient to the letter of the law, fulfilled his father's wishes. But we know there's a distinction, right? It's a distinction between being obedient to the letter and obedient to the Spirit, right? And we know that the New Testament makes a distinction. Um, I always thought of, um, you know, with my children when they were uh, growing up, I have three girls, and um, it is how they were different. Uh, my oldest daughter would be the best one to send out into the garage or the shop to find a tool. Christina would go out there and find this tool for me, bring it in. Uh, it's here hanging up on the wall. Well, guess what? actually wasn't hanging up on the wall. Whether Cindy had got out and disrupted my shop or how it happened, but it wasn't where I thought it was. Okay, And so, uh, you know, if I'd send my middle daughter for that, she would go out and come back and know it wasn't there. I looked where you said and it wasn't there. Now, Christina, on the other hand, would come back with it almost all the time. It wasn't where you said, but I found it. So I often thought of that as the distinction between the letter and the spirit of the thing. And so Joseph is obedient to the spirit of what his father said. He went to Shechem and the boys weren't there. Could have turned and went back home, but he didn't. He knew his father's heart and so he went on. And we think of this pictured for us in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. This idea that all the way to Calvary he went for me. Right? He died to set me free. And so Joseph goes on all the way to Dothan. Verse 18, Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Hamilton Smith in his, um, his little booklet on the life of Joseph has a really interesting cross-reference to this little verse here. Now when they saw him afar off. Do you know of any kind of score, corresponding ideas to that in the New Testament? Think about that. They saw him afar off. Well, here it says when they saw him afar off, they, they conspired in their hearts to kill him yeah the prodigal son that's the one he uses what does it say in the prodigal son when he saw him afar off he ran to him right I mean we know in the story of the prodigal son Luke chapter 15 that that's really one parable with three parts right isn't it remember it was one parable it's not parables it's one parable so it's three parts uh, the shepherd, uh, the shepherd is a picture of the Lord Jesus, right? Uh, the woman working frantically, a picture of the Holy Spirit, right? You know, I, I mean, this is a this is a great encouragement, isn't it? As we go out into the world to to preach the gospel, that hey, the Spirit of God is working in the world, right? Working in the world, convicting of sin, of righteousness, and judgment to come. So the Woman picturing the Spirit of God working. And then thirdly, the third part, a picture of the Father. And so Hamilton Smith says, what a contrast. This, this here is the heart of man. 
right? Uh, the heart of man. Here's Joseph coming in his righteousness. He's not a bad brother. He's a good brother. Coming in his righteousness. And they see him afar off and they conspire in their hearts to kill him. What a contrast to Luke chapter 15. Here's the prodigal returning, wasted his father's inheritance on riotous living. And the father, it says, what does he do? He runs to him. Right? He runs to him and um, brings him back into the family. Right? Showers him with his goodness and grace, mercy. G. Campbell Morgan writing on the passage, you know, he brings in the fourth part, the son who didn't come in. And so, you know, you have this son who who um, went away and wasted his father's living. Then you have the son who stayed home, not obedient to the spirit of the thing, just to the law of the letter. And so G. Campbell Morgan asked the question, um, who is the good son in the story? And so you, um, of course... You think it's sort of a question like when the Lord Jesus asked, which was these two sons did the will of his master. And G. Campbell Morgan goes on to say this, well, neither of those sons were good. Neither the one who went away nor the one who stayed out. He said the only good son in the story was the son who was telling the story. right? The son of the father, the son of the father's love. And so uh, the contrast here, they saw him afar off. They conspire to kill him. Say, look, this dreamer is coming. Let us kill him, cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what would become of his dreams. Verse 21 says, But Reuben heard, and he delivered out of him out of their hands. Let us not kill him. Reuben said, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. I guess what we would see emphasized here is that although they were all guilty, they were not all the same. Reuben was different, right? He wasn't cruel, right? You remember Simeon and Levi were were accused of Jacob, right? Remember his verdict against them is that they were cruel. We certainly see that at the cross. There were various degrees of cruelty, right? Um, Herod, in his judgment of the Lord Jesus, although he mocked him, he said, I find nothing worthy of death in him. Uh, Pilate. Uh, Pilate didn't have the same opinion towards the Lord Jesus that the Jews did. You remember, I mean, uh, you know, Pilate's wife, you remember that, right? She came to him and said, have nothing to do with this just man. I believe he tried to uh, listen to his wife. It's always a good idea. I'm sure they knew that 2,000 years ago. It's a good idea to listen to your wife. And and so um, and so what he does is he comes up with this idea of presenting to the people the Lord Jesus on the one hand and and the worst man in prison on the other. And he just assumed that that um, when they were thinking of Barabbas a thief and a murderer, that there'd be no way that they would choose him over Jesus. Right? You remember he said he he wanted to do the right thing and he also wanted to make the people happy. So that was a huge dilemma for him. And so, of course, it backfired. We know that. Uh, 
And so even here in the life of Joseph, we see this distinction, right? We see this distinction the way Reuben was and some of the other brothers. Uh, then we see um, uh, them take and cast him into a pit in verse 24 and then sit down to eat a meal. Well, we see that pictured at the cross, right? Uh, pictured at the cross that after they crucified him, they sat down to watch him there, the cruelty of man. Uh, they sit here down here to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes in verse 25 and looked. There was a company of the Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. Verse 26, and this is Judah's first mentioned words in Scripture. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? And so some have ably pointed out uh, that Judah chose commerce over doing the right thing. Do you know if you're Jewish, you're 200% more likely to be a millionaire? Did you know that? You think that's true? Jews today represent 2% of the world's population. Of the um, 10 richest men in America... How many of them are Jewish? You think about that. They represent 2% of the world's population. Of the 10 richest men in America, how many of them are Jewish? Half. Do you believe that? Yeah. Half of the 10 richest men in America are Jewish. You're 200% more likely to be rich if you're Jewish. Now, um, Anti-Semitism would say that it's because um, they're crooked. We reject that idea. Um, others would suggest that, hey, they educated their children. When everybody else wasn't, Jewish houses were educating their children. Uh, they would say, hey, statistically in North America, those people you're talking about, those men you're talking about who are rich, they're also smart. Uh and so they've always been good at commerce. Some say it started back here. Life of Judah chose commerce over Christ. Well, we know this is the New Testament too. They sold the Lord Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, what happens here is what happened in the life of Christ. Say, well, we would never do that. Well, maybe we are. Maybe I am. It could happen, right? I mean, you can't see my heart. I can't see your heart. I don't know what's most important to you. Um, I guess if we spent time together, uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, so eventually we could begin to get an idea. But you know, the challenge in Western Christianity is not persecution. You know, when we think about suffering and suffering and follow that with glory, the suffering in this country is different than the suffering in other parts of the world. Hey, in some parts of the world, even tonight, people are dying for faith in Jesus Christ. That's not the challenge typically in Western society. Western society, it's 
probably materialism. Right? And, and, and I know the, the challenge that comes from trying to have a house and to raise a family. You know, um, I don't know if you know anything about uh, Vancouver, where we live. We live in um, my mom's garage. Uh, now it's got a bathroom. It's a nice enough place. It's not a mansion by any means. But uh, it's not because we're suffering for the gospel. The town we live in, you buy a you know, three-bedroom house with a basement, uh, costs a million dollars. Million one, nine hundred thousand, uh, and so if you're going to buy that, there's a real challenge associated with that. You know the hours you have to work in a week, and so I understand that a little bit. But you know what? What's in your heart? You know that's what the Lord is interested in. And so these brothers, they show what's in their hearts. They hate Joseph for his righteousness. Then they hate him for what he's going to become. Uh, then they show that, that in their hearts, it's about profit. In Judah's life, as we already said, chapter 38, it ends in disaster. So trust that as we think through the life of Joseph, we think through the lessons and try and work through the lessons that that um, our hearts will be drawn to the Lord Jesus, that we'll see him pictured, that, that Joseph came knowing what his brothers were going to do. The Lord Jesus came knowing all about me. He died for me. And um, this idea that... that um, in considering all of these things the Lord Jesus did for me, this idea that I would worship Him, you know, that I would, that I would give my life in exchange for that. Paul doesn't say that's supernatural. Do you remember in Romans 12, verse 1? He says it's my reasonable form of worship. This idea, the price the Lord Jesus Christ paid for my redemption for my soul, for my life. He says, my reasonable, my reasonable form of worship is that I would give my life, I would sanctify my life for Him. And so I trust that we could be challenged in our thinking. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we're grateful tonight for pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. We would... Um, Remember that Resurrection Sunday is those two walked from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Their hearts were heavy. They were sad. And the Lord Jesus Christ drew near and opened to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Father, we pray that we would be Reminded of the love that that you had for your Son. Father, the love you had for the world in sending your Son. Lord Jesus, the love you had for us in giving yourself for us. The love you had for your Father in giving yourself for sin. 
And the Father, as we think through these outstanding doctrines of Scripture, that our hearts would be drawn to Your Son and our hearts would be drawn to You. Father, we would be equipped to better serve You, to praise, to worship You. We ask that You would bless us tonight in our continued fellowship together. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.